there are three ways in this world to get something done, I've heard. You can either do it yourself or hire somebody else to do it or forbid your kids to do it. Now, what I'm recognizing is that somewhat of what is going on in, in 2 Corinthians has to do with God having forbidden something and they did it anyway. I want to get into this. This is kind of a desperate story and very hard, hard to kind of wade through. By the way, this was laying out in the hallway. I picked it up as I came in. It's a little girl. It says 2014. It's a bookmark. That may be somebody's grandchild or child. I'm going to leave it up here. Is that yours? It just, I just, as I walked in, good. I was just, just afraid somebody had lost that, so I'm glad we found it. Great. By the way, you reminded me, let's continue to remember the monks. Um, David, I, we're getting to see him most Tuesday mornings, which is wonderful, thanks to Charles. Um, there, Charles is bringing him to Bible study, but he's, it, is he weakening Charles, in your opinion? Okay. Can he talk to you at all? Okay. I've, I've gotten past the point where I ask him questions because I know it's hard for him to talk. And, and uh, is mostly fed intravenously because he can't swallow. And, um, but he's still got a great attitude. And it's just wonderful to get to see him. Let's, we just got to pray for, for uh, uh, David and Donna. Okay. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. You know, you and I live in a culture where people like to quote, um, even those who are just on the fringes of the church especially, like to quote Jesus' words in Matthew 7 about judge not that you won't be judged. Okay, People who could not quote John 3.16 can quote that for some reason. Okay, um, You know, and, and usually it's, it's shared by somebody on the, on the fringes of things. But you know, it's the, the issue behind that is not as simple as a flippant don't judge soundbite would suggest. God is and will always be the ultimate judge. And there is a judgment to face. For many people, it's not going to be very pretty. If God's desire is known, it is in fact, I believe, not to judge, but to forgive. I love the words in, in uh, John 3, and they were spoken to first to a really religious man, uh, Nicodemus, who, who was so religious and so uh, proper and appropriate and, and, and pious that he was called the great teacher of Israel. And yet to him, it was, it was him to whom Jesus first said, you must be born again. And it was to Nicodemus that Jesus also said, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might, uh, might be saved. All right? So I really believe that, that, Jesus, that Jesus and God, their default position is forgiveness. And yet, if we don't accept that message, we're subject to God's judgment. We'll never be able to accept God's forgiveness or even sense a need of it. In truth, forgiveness has no meaning unless it's cast against the backdrop of judgment. Now that's hard, but that's just kind of true. Sadly, once 
some folks accept the forgiveness of God. They forget about judgment after that. Instead of living as grateful people who want to serve the one who forgave them, they fall back into an old habit of rebellion, even evil. The Bible calls that sin. They treat their forgiveness not as a precious and life-changing issue, but as something cheap and kind of inconsequential. Uh, it's, it's that issue that, um, uh, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer addresses in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's just so true. Well, God is also in the business of calling the fallen back to repentance. And that's what we're going to deal, deal with today. The church in Cor- Corinth had so many different serious problems. Um, you got to know, this was the church that kept Paul up at night. Um, in, in, in particular, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 5. We're not going to, we'll actually be in 1 Corinthians 5 a little bit later. We're talking about how Paul suggests that they deal with this. But there was just a, a despicable, um, ongoing sexual, even incestuous relationship that was going on within the church. Everybody knew about it. And I began to think about this as I was thinking, how did they deal with that? Because it would be like uh, this couple walks into the service every week and everybody knows and everybody just says, but they don't do anything about it. They just kind of, but they don't do anything about it. And Paul writes them with a desperate plea in 1 Corinthians, you got to take care of this. And we're going to see what he suggests and how it turned out. He gives them really specific instructions that the man had to be put out of the church, as hard as that sounds. That message was difficult for the Corinthian church to believe, but Paul to receive. But Paul knew that without that, this man would not come to terms with his sin and eventually, hopefully, be redeemed. This was a redemptive thing. And we've got to kind of keep in our mind that the ultimate goal here was restoration. For him to be forgiven and restored. But it wasn't going to happen as long as he was allowed to continue as he was. So Paul gives them this hard teaching. Now, it appears that many in the church resented that instruction. Duh, right? So Paul had to pay them a painful visit to address the situation. He writes about that at the beginning of of, uh, 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, The church decides to follow Paul's instruction. As a result, that immoral individual was separated from fellowship within the church. Paul had planned to visit them another time to kind of check on it. He announced it in in advance, but something changed his plans. And he talks about that as we begin this section in Scripture. So I want us to go to verse 23. And Bob, would you read just 23 and 24 for now? And then we'll jump over to chapter 2. Okay, now, somebody, if you would, jump over to 1131. Paul is going to invoke something here that I caution you ever to do. He calls upon God as his witness 
to the truth. God, as God is my witness, he says. You heard that before? Be careful. Paul can say it. Okay? I intended to come to you. I changed my mind. There's nothing wrong as God is my witness. Um, somebody, did somebody find 1131? God knows I'm not lying. I just want to encourage you. I put several references here where Paul will say this kind of really harsh, with kind of difficult thing. He'll say, God is my witness. I'm, not, I'm telling the truth here. You want to be sure you're telling the truth when you say that. Yeah. You, know, I, you know, you say that to me, and, I, and I'm wondering about that. I may look over at you, scoot over a little bit, and say, God, don't miss. You know, Okay. <laughs> You just don't want to invoke that unless you're telling the truth. Now, the issue is here that he is, his plans have changed in order to spare them grief. He's had enough tough talks with them. Okay? He's sparing them some grief here. Now, he goes on to talk about here in verse 24 that Bob read for us. I don't lord it over your faith. But I'm working beside you for your joy. The idea in the NIV is he's serving them. So what's his aim in serving according to that? To bring them joy. Okay. Now he wants to keep that behind everything. Paul's aim in serving is to give them joy. And he kind of... It's kind of a similar thought to what Jesus says in Mark 10, 45 when he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. All right? Paul has caught that, and he's serving them. He wants them to have joy, and he serves them with that in mind. Now, it's going to be clear as we begin chapter 2 here that Paul has a priority or some priorities that guide his decision. You can put that in the next line. And Bob, can I come back to you and have you read the first four verses of 2? Okay, now... Go over just real quickly. Just turn over half a dozen pages to 12, 21. We're going to look at this a couple of times. I'm afraid, he says, when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality with which they practice. He is really dangerously considering what to do here. And he's allowing his priority for ministry, this priority of serving them for their joy, to guide his decision making. If another visit won't bring about repentance and therefore reconciliation, then he just won't go. And so he doesn't go. All right? Now, in verse 2, in verse 2, he gives us some teaching here that... Um, that I've distilled into just kind of a, a pethy statement here. All right? Um, he had introduced these people to Jesus. Uh, and he indicates here, look at verse 24 from chapter 1 again. 
Not that we lord it over your faith, but our work is with you for your joy. The idea here is that he introduced them to Christ, that they ought to bring him joy, but he wants to bring them joy too. It ought to be a kind of a mutual, mutual relationship. In other words, what is best for you and me in God's design is that I work for you, I serve you to give you a measure of joy, and you do the same for me. That's not working out so well yet. Okay? So he kind of uh, deals with this just a little bit here. And, um, and he recognizes here that a special relationship, there's what goes in the blank, a special relationship that he has with them. What's his special relationship? He led them to Christ, led them to faith. Okay? His special relationship with them also implies or requires a really special responsibility. Okay? Now, if you want to know what brings Rhonda joy these days, ask her if she'll show you a picture. I, I saw her showing Marcia a picture just a minute ago. Okay? Because we got this picture on Facebook last night of this little cat grinning his head off in Michigan. And uh, we, we've got a smiling little boy on our hands, which is, it just warms all our hearts. But what I'm recognizing is that Christy, because she birthed Silas, has a really special relationship with him, but it's also because she has a special responsibility toward him. And she takes that very seriously and does better at it than anybody I know. If I introduced you to Christ, then I've got a really special and different and, and wonderful relationship to help you in that. Joe, am I, do I need to tighten up? Something going on. Okay, we'll see if it quits. All right, now, so Paul in verse 3 desires to bring this joy, and the word that I'm going to use here is by provoking Provoking repentance and reconciliation. Provoking repentance and therefore reconciliation. His decision to write to the Corinthians is controlled by the same aim as a visit would be, to bring joy by provoking them to do the right thing. Uh, Paul may be reflecting on his writing of 1 Corinthians here, because in that letter he directly addresses this problem, the immoral person of 1 Corinthians 5. But he may also be referring to another letter that he wrote after 1 Corinthians that we actually don't have. It could be that there was another letter that he wrote. Paul's anguish in verse 4 here in this matter, and he's really, he's not conflicted on it. He's just got a lot of anguish of heart. See that in verse 4? He wrote to them with a lot of tears. Can you imagine when this book was originally received, when this letter was originally received, it might have had huge tear stains on the pages. May have. He's got a lot of anguish over having to deal with this. Actually, what he's dealing with is an expression of what you and I would call tough love. Now, that word was coined actually in a 1968 book by that title. Uh, tough love. Um, I think we all kind of get it. But tell me what, how you would define tough love. Uh, 
I'm not going to enable anymore. That's a great word to use as a comparison. I've been enabling for a while. It's the, uh, the wife who calls in sick for her husband because he's been drinking the night before. And instead, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise tough love. Okay? Somebody else, what, what would you, how would you add to that? Tough love. I'm going to have to make you take responsibility for your own actions. Eileen, you've had to do that before, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. And Charles is all the better for it. But no, no. He's really cutting darts at me at this point. Jan? You know, and you never believe that at the time until you have to do it for somebody else. It's going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. That's the toughness in it, isn't it? It's harsh, but necessary. Um, the idea here is this is a response usually of last resort when nothing else has, has seemed to work. Um, it, it, it's the strong discipline that's required to correct the behavior of somebody whose life is spiraling downward to destruction. And eventually, somebody's got to come alongside him and say, I'm going to give you some love, but it's going to be a different kind of love. Now, I want us to layer this idea of tough love that Paul's having to give here in the context of Ephesians 4.15. I want us all to turn there. Ephesians 4.15. Really important that we catch this. We talked last week about the necessity of, of empathy. Here's empathy at its best description. Okay? Ephesians 4.15. Would somebody read it? Okay. What you've got to deal with here is this wonderful scriptural phrase also from the mind of God and the pen of Paul. Speaking the truth in love. Now, what happens if you omit one or the other of those commodities? Okay, let me give you an illustration. I spent 10 and a half, 11 years of my life in Appalachia, during which time someone may, on a given day, any given day, approach you, sidle up to you, put their, even put their arm around you, and say, let me tell you the truth. You knew the next thing that was coming was not going to be fun. You know, I'm going to tell you the truth. But you knew, most cases, it wasn't mixed with love. In most cases. They had a value in those places of speaking the truth, but they often didn't mix it with love. Okay? And so it was less impactful in my life than the person who really did sidle up to me and put their arm around me because I knew they loved me and would say, you know what, I think there's something I need to share with you that's bothering me that I'm just going to tell you this because I love you. You notice the different approach? So I can approach you with truth, but it better be mixed with love if it's going to impact you. And, and you've got to catch the other way around too. If I approach you with love, but don't tell you the truth, my love is ineffective. Okay? Uh, that's the enabling piece, Joanna. 
you know? Oh, I love him so much I can't correct him. I'll just let him keep doing what he's doing. Paul was not willing to do that. And so he addresses this very, very hard issue. This issue of tough love is, I believe, my definition of it would be where truth and love interact and interplay. Okay? Now, let's go on to chapter 2, verse 5, and somebody read down through 11. Just love the, the beauty of what happens here. And don't miss it. Stick with me. Let me make sure I can, I can get you to, there to, to deal with it. And remember, he has dealt with in writing and in person an immoral situation that's openly happening within the church. He says, you got to handle it. And they did. And they did. They set this immoral person outside the church. Now, one of the things I, w- I want to ask you about here, because none of us likes this kind of scenario, but when... Um, when something like this is active within the church, who gets hurt? I, let, let's talk, because you're right, but let's talk about who gets hurt. The person themselves is not served well because they're allowed to go on in, in, without being con, uh, confronted with this, all right? It hurts the, the family within the church, an extended family within the church, How about the leaders? Sure. Did this hurt Paul? You bet it did. We can read the the anguish in in his writing here. Is the Lord hurt? (coughs) It grieves him. His reputation is on the line. Even though his reputation is stellar. Certainly the church itself is hurt by this. So the idea here is, let me fill in your blank, the sad truth is that when one church member's actions, one church member's actions can cause the entire church, the entire body to suffer, all over defying the will of God in some issue. Everybody can suffer. So it's got to be dealt with. And the church, I believe here, had acted properly. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 5, because that's where it's dealt with originally. Okay? 1 Corinthians 5. Just, so just turn back three or four pages, probably, in your Bible. Somebody read verse 2, and then jump down to read verse 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, and 5, 13. And then jump to 13, Cindy. What's he asking them to do? Expel. Nobody likes that thought. Nobody likes that thought. But they're asking him to set him outside. Paul's asking him to set him out. And there's a reason for it. Now, here's here's the issue here. Paul's advice was accepted. They did what he asked them to do in 1 Corinthians 5. And the action accomplished what was intended. Look at verse 7 again. 
So on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What he's dealing with here is, is the man has dealt with his sin. He's asked to be forgiven. He asked the Lord for forgiveness. And now Paul is advocating reconciliation with the person. So this setting out, this, um, um, Morgan, was it you and I that were talking earlier in the week? And I said, if you repeat me, I could be, I could be excommunicated. Okay, that, that was... Um, um, the idea, the idea here is that excommunication wasn't designed just to get rid of him. It was designed to cause him to come to a place of repentance, and it worked. It was designed to cause him to a place to, to come to a place of restoration. Now, here's my question: Can there be restoration without repentance? That's a rhetorical question. There can be no restoration without the respondent repentance here. Now, I want us to look at a couple of places. Somebody go to Luke 15, 7, and I want you to, if, thank you, John, 15, 7, 10, and 32, all those out of that chapter 15. This is the story of the prodigal son, and I want us to re review what I uh, shared with you a bit ago from John three seventeen. Somebody go to John three seventeen. Okay, Jan, would you read 16 and 17 together? I think that would be good. All right, now, where can freedom be found? Here, it's clear that repentance started the road to freedom. The result of his repentance was a freedom, a release from condemnation, an end to all that sorrow that we talked about a couple of verses ago. And something else takes place. John, start with verse seven, uh, 15, 7 in Luke. And if you'd read 7 and then go to 10 and then to 32. They all, all three kind of reference the same thing. Luke 15, 7, 10, and 32. What's the result other than the restoration process? What's the result in heaven of sincere repentance? Rejoicing, a party. We got to kind of catch that, all right? Uh, Jan, read John three verse sixteen and seventeen. The end of this awful period ought to be a celebration of restoration. No more condemnation because repentance has happened. Now, by the way, you've got to understand, repentance means not only just saying I'm sorry, it means turning from my sin. That's really key. I'm turning around and going the other way. That's the nature of the word here. So if the goal is restoration, then this step in verse 8 should be logical. And I ask that question again, can restoration happen without repentance? Let's look at verse 8 one more time. I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. If the sin was public, then so should be the acceptance. If the punishment was public, then the acceptance ought to be the same. Once they have dealt with the sin and turned from that way. I think this is really important here. And the rest of this lesson is in the last five minutes or so is going to be dealing with this issue. Now, in verse 9, the issue in the former letter in 1 Corinthians was a test for the congregation and for the church. Did they pass? You bet they did. 
But Paul wants to remove any doubt. Look at verse 10, that he holds a grudge here. One whom you forgive anything, I forgive also, he says. If you forgave him, I forgave him. Now, we kind of like holding grudges, don't we? I have a three-car grudge myself. Don't we just sometimes kind of enjoy it? I, I, I heard a story once of a guy who went to see his pastor, and things aren't going well in the marriage, and he says, Pastor, the deal is, when my wife and I have a fight, she gets historical. And he said, you mean hysterical? And he said, no, historical. She brings up the past. Don't, don't we like, we get some kind of not good satisfaction out of holding a grudge. Paul wants to remove any doubt. He says, if he's dealt with the sin and you guys have forgiven him, I forgive him too. It's really important that they know that and that he expresses this. Here's my question to you. Uh, somebody go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read verse 5. Remember the love chapter? Paul wrote that one too. This was in the context of all the stuff he's dealing with. It, I think it's amazing to me that he writes 13 as he's dealing with this hideous, heinous, nasty situation in 5. He writes 13 to kind of temper it and to bring truth out of it. 13.5, as he's describing love, what does he say about love in 13.5? It keeps no record of wrongs. Can I tell you something? Paul says, the same Paul who said, toss this guy out, is the guy who says, love is not an accountant. Now for you, Walter, sorry. Okay, for you CPAs in here. Love is not an accountant. There's no record kept of the wrong once it's dealt with. There's no grudge holding. Paul has no part in that. The Lord Jesus has no part in that. Now, the last verse of it, he brings up old Slewfoot here. Okay, uh, number, number, verse 11. Here we go. No, so that no advantage will be taken. He says, uh, I've forgiven so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Boy, he's certainly not. A failure to have restored that penitent person would, have mean that, would mean that Satan somehow wins. Paul says we're not going to let Satan get the upper hand in this. Now, here's how I want to end this, because this has been hard for me to kind of deal with this week. If we deal with sin appropriately within the body, what does it say to the person who was the offender? I, I really like that that was your first response. It says, we love you enough to not let you stay in this pattern. Tough love. Really says, we love you. What does it say to the body? To the church. Say that again. We love the Lord and His teachings and your actions matter. Always has. What does it say to the world? It says, you know, all this stuff that we read in the, in the, the 
any hypocrisy is on the front page of the paper, isn't it? So, what we do, what we say, how we act matters. And our reputation matters. The reputation of the Lord and His church matters. By the way, do you know, the first century of Christianity, when it, when it was in its fledgling stage, when the church was just a bouncing baby and could have as easily died as survived. Patty, it's like our little, our little buddy that was just born. Do you know what was often said about the church by the world? We don't get what these guys do. They worship somebody that was an itinerant preacher who was not really all that connected, who they claimed to be a god. He was dead. They claim he came back to life. We don't get all that, but I'll tell you this. They sure love each other. What was most remarkable about the early church was how much they cared for each other, how much they loved each other, even when it meant some really tough kind of love. All right. We're in chapter 4 next week. It'll be a little more fun, okay? I hope. (laughs) See ya.